When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hey there, Hit Parade listeners. What you're about to hear is part one of this episode. Part two will arrive in your podcast feed at the end of the month. Would you like to hear this episode all at once, the day it drops? Sign up for Slate Plus. You can try it for a month for just $1. And it supports not only this show, but all of Slate's acclaimed journalism and podcasts. Just go to slate.com slash hitparadeplus. You'll get to hear every Hit Parade episode in full the day it arrives. Plus, Hit Parade The Bridge, our bonus episodes, with guests interviews, deeper dives on our episode topics, and pop chart trivia. Once again, to join, that's slate.com slash hitparadeplus. Thanks, and now please enjoy part one of this Hit Parade episode. This episode contains explicit language. Welcome to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On today's show, 31 years ago, in June of 1990, the clown prince of hip hop, Biz Marquis, was spending his 22nd and final week on the Hot 100 with his one and only pop hit, Just a Friend, a song in which Biz serves as his own featured act, delivering both the rapped verse and a sung chorus, one that millions of people are still drunkenly singing along with to this day. This time I thought just having a friend couldn't be no crime. Cause I have friends, and that's a fact like Agnes, Agatha, Jermaine, and Jack. Just a Friend was a number nine pop, number 37 R&B single, the only Hot 100 hit or major R&B hit of any kind for The Biz, making him a one-hit wonder. But 12 years after Biz Marquis' one hit, teen singer Mario Barrett, who went by the mononym Mario, brought Just a Friend back to both charts. I want to know you in and out. I want to know what you're all about. I want to know. Except in Mario's version, titled Just a Friend 2002, he was singing everything. A completely different verse with an all-new tale of unrequited love. And a chorus nearly identical to Biz Marquis, but far less comical. This prompts some questions. Was Just a Friend always a straight-up R&B song in rap song clothing? 
Was it waiting for a pure R&B singer to wrap his vocals around it? Was it called rap in 1990 because the funniest parts of it are rapped, or simply because Biz Marquis is a rapper? What about the fact that Biz sang the chorus, albeit not as mellifluously as Mario later would? Questions like these were novelties in 1990. By 2002, they were less novel. And two decades later, we are no longer surprised when so-called rappers are scoring hits by mostly singing. Brand new Lamborghini, a cop car, with a pistol on my hip like I'm a cop. Have you ever met a real rock star? This ain't no good talk, this a clock. How did we get here? When did the wall fall between dropping bars and carrying a tune? Most of the first wave of rappers in the 80s wouldn't be caught dead singing. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Along the way, hip-hop production styles found their way into pure R&B, even when the R&B artists were still singing. And eventually, rappers were slipping melody into their bars, sometimes singing unassisted, and sometimes making digital-era singing tools part of their rap. By the 2010s, a new generation of rappers had so blurred the lines between R&B and hip-hop that songs containing no actual rapping were labeled rap. Drake is perhaps the most prominent artist erasing the lines between singing and rapping in the 21st century. But if there is a locus of power between singing and rapping, it's the first couple of rap and B, aka J and B. Since Jay-Z and Beyonce joined forces, both professionally and as a couple, in the early aughts, Mr. Sean Carter and Ms. Beyonce Knowles Carter have crossed into each other's territory. Jay almost entirely avoids singing, but he has, on very rare occasion, sung a bit here and there. And Queen B? She has taken to dropping bars with a flow distinct from her husband's and all her own. My daddy Alabama, mama Louisiana. You mix that Negro with that Creole, make a Texas Bama. But arguably, Beyonce's greater innovation in the field of singing and rapping came before she and Jay ever met. When she was still a teenager in Destiny's Child, the young Ms. Knowles was already vocalizing with the flow of a rapper. And in so doing, she helped change the game. The other day, I would call, you would say, baby, how's your day? But today, ain't it the same? And that's where your hit parade marches today. The week ending March 18th, 2000, when Say My Name by Destiny's Child reached number one on both the Hot 100 and the chart Billboard now called Hot R&B slash Hip Hop Singles. The Hip Hop had been added just one year before, acknowledging what rising groups like Beyonce's had already made obvious. R&B vocals and hip-hop flow were fusing. Say My Name is a pivot point, but there are many examples, both before and after Queen Bee decided to sing like she was spitting fire. When and how did singing and rapping merge into one chart-topping genre? Baby, I love you, I love you. 
Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In 2017, Toronto-based rapper and singer Aubrey Graham, a.k.a. Drake, gave an interview to Apple Music the day after he won two Grammy Awards. But Drake, who hadn't bothered to show up at the Grammys the night before and collect his prizes, he wasn't really feeling them. Last night at that award show, I am apparently a rapper, you know, even though Hotline Bling is not a rap song. The only category that they can manage to fit me in is in a rap category. Maybe because I've rapped in the past or because I'm black. I can't figure out why. I love the rap world and I love the rap community, but you're right. I write, I write pop songs for a reason. I won okay. two awards last night, okay. but I don't even want them because it just feels weird putting me in that category because mm. it's the only place you can figure out where to, where to put me. When you ask me, like, do I feel racism? You don't really notice it like that mm. until I start talking about the music business. There's something a bit ironic about Drake, of all people, complaining about the Recording Academy calling his sung song a rap song. I mean, fundamentally, he is right. Hotline Bling, Drake's Grammy winner for both Best Rap Song and Best Rap Slash Sung Performance, has no actual rapping in it. You used to call me on my cell phone when you need my love call me on my cell phone but New York Times critic John Caramonica went so far as to credit Drake with inventing or at least popularizing a new form in his 2019 article quote rappers are singers now thank Drake Caramonica wrote that Mr. Aubrey Graham quote fundamentally rewrote the rules of what it meant to be a rapper in the 2010s, singing as rapping, rapping as singing, singing and rapping all woven together into one holistic whole. In Drake's hands, rapping and singing were in constant, graceful dialogue. I want this forever, I swear I can spend whatever on it. Cause she hold me down every time I hit up. Caramonica wrote this at the twilight of the tens. In the early 20s, this so-called post-Drake era certainly hasn't ended. Your Hit Parade host, who is also Slate's Why Is This Song number 1 columnist, continues to write about chart-topping quote-unquote rap songs in which nobody is talking in cadence over a beat. Hip-hop superstars like, say, Polo G pretty much sing all the way through such as on his 2021 number one hit, Rap Star, which Polo croons over, no kidding, a ukulele. I ain't joking, do it sound like I'm kidding. I've been making like 2,000 a minute. So high up through the clouds, I was swimming. While I do agree with John Caramonica that Drake helped change the game, turning sing-rapping into the primary mode for hip-hop, I also recall that way back when Aubrey Graham was still playing Jimmy on the Canadian teen TV soap Degrassi The Next Generation, rappers were already employing melodic cadence, basically singing on their hits, whether they could sing or not. And well before the 21st century, rapping and singing were being hybridized. As we noted in last month's hit parade, Frank Farian's late 80s Europop confection Milli Vanilli fused tunes and bars from the jump way back in 1989, including on the hit they stole from a Baltimore hip-hop crew. Girl, you know it's true. 
But the story of Singh rapping goes back even further than that. For decades, we've heard closed-minded complaints that rap, quote, isn't music or has nothing to do with singing. But regardless of what these disdainers say, from that grumpy, rock-loving uncle you see at Thanksgiving to famous grumpy uncles like David Crosby or Gene Simmons, the fact is, from its very origins, rap records have carried a tune. A regenerated, less complicated, vibrating, educating, and stimulating, young and old as a whole, those and old jazz is pros. This track is called Jazzoetry, an appropriate title given the worlds of jazz and poetry being smashed together by the artistic collective known as The Last Poets. Critics have long credited this sprawling group of artist coup musicians with prefiguring hip-hop more than a half century ago, with their bespoke blend of spoken word lyrics and groovy rhythms. They weren't exactly rapping, but their pattern was clearly musical. The roots of rap, in other words, had the cadence of song. Jazzoetry is vocalized by Last Poets co-founder Jalal Nuruddin, but you're probably more familiar with another Last Poet, who broke away and did his own thing, Gil Scott Heron. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle. Scott Heron produced both spoken word tracks, like the legendary The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, and songs that were sung, such as this heartbreaker Kanye West would sample decades later. I left three days ago, but no one seems to know I'm gone. But while Gil Scott Heron's albums would feature his singing and his proto-rapping side by side, he generally did not combine them. It was only when musicians better known for their singing began experimenting with a more recognizable rap style that the genre began to take shape on record. For example, on his one-off single, Rap-O Clap-O, in 1979, Latin boogaloo and salsa vocalist Joe Batan came up with a clap-your-hands invocation that became a timeless rap trope. For artists like Batan, or funk group The Fatback Band, whose King Tim III personality jock we played you in our Def Jams episode of Hit Parade three years ago, these early rap experiments were just extensions of the call and response music they'd been making for years. You just clap your hands and you stomp your feet because you're listening to the sound of the show Shadid. I'm the K-I-N-G, the G-I-M, King Tim III, and I am him. The major difference between these two 1979 tracks and the single that's now known the world over as rap's official first recorded hit Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. Is that the Sugar Hill Gang actually self-consciously tell you they're rapping? Of course, Rapper's Delight has plenty of actual music supporting the rapping. As we've covered several times on Hit Parade, the team at Sugar Hill Records stole from the best, the bass line from Sheik's 1979 number one hit, Good Times. But the Sugar Hill team wanted you to notice the rap as distinct from the music. In essence, the debate over whether rappers should be melodic was baked right into the genre's first hit. 
During rap's early years, some of the boldest sing and rap experimentation came from artists not endemic to hip-hop, who were nonetheless deeply influential. This includes, most famously, Blondie, who came up through legendary New York punk club CBGB and whose Hot 100 number one, Rapture, finds Debbie Harry both singing and rapping. or funk godfather and Parliament Funkadelic leader George Clinton, whose 1983 number one R&B hit Atomic Dog evoked the hip-hop ethos. An electro-funk classic, Atomic Dog evoked rap even though Clinton wasn't exactly rapping. He was either singing or talking his way through. Perhaps most influential in this period of rap-pop or rap-funk hybrids was this classic, a side gig by another gang of former CBGB punks. Tom Tom Club was a side project of Talking Heads rhythm section Chris France and Tina Weymouth. In 1981, the married drummer and bassist released Genius of Love, an ingenious hybrid of new wave, hip-hop breakbeats, and even dub reggae, courtesy of Jamaican producer and co-songwriter Stephen Stanley. Remarkably, despite France and Weymouth's rock roots, Genius of Love was a bigger hit on the R&B chart, where it hit number two, then on the Hot 100, where it reached number 31. Even more remarkably, Genius of Love proved one of the most influential singles in hip-hop history, sampled dozens of times. The duo Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde covered it almost immediately in 1981, converting Tina Weymouth's singing into straight-up rapping on Genius Rap. But by the late 80s, the melody of Genius of Love was creeping back in. In 1988, West Coast MC Mixmaster Spade sing-rapped his lines while throwing a diss at Jekyll and Hyde. Of course, the best-known cover of Genius of Love, flashing ahead to the mid-90s, was entirely sung. Mariah Carey's Fantasy, a 1995 reboot of the Tom Tom Club's hit. Harry was clearly looking to invoke the song's hip-hop roots as much as its pop hooks, from the old Dirty Bastard verse on the remix to the song's thick breakbeats. Fantasy arguably echoes Mixmaster Spade as much as it does Tom Tom Club. Other 80s rappers who sang included Brooklyn trio Houdini, who both rapped their verses and sang their choruses on hits like Friends and Freaks Come Out at Night. And on a storied, two-sided 1985 hit single from Doug E. Fresh and the Get Fresh crew, British-born rapper Slick Rick slipped in some very famous melodies on both sides. 
On the show, the single's A-side, Slick Rick dropped in a few bars of The Beatles. And on the flip side, Lottie Dottie, which got almost as much black radio airplay as the show, Slick Rick crooned the melody and lyrics from a Taste of Honey's 1981 hit, Sukiyaki. So I said, what's wrong? Because she looked upset. She said, um, it's all because of you. I'm feeling sad and blue. You went away and now my life is filled with rainy days. This infusion of melody into hip-hop hits was, in some ways, a ploy to get rap on the radio. Station programmers needed to be convinced that rap wasn't a fad, including R&B radio program directors, who were in some ways even more skeptical about rap than their counterparts at Top 40 Radio. As we noted in our Def Jams episode, overcoming this bias was more or less what LL Cool J had in mind in 1987 when he recorded I Need Love. On the seminal rap ballad, LL came as close to singing, without actually singing, as a rapper with street cred reasonably could. One half of me deserves to be this way till I'm old, but the other half needs affection and joy, and the warmth that is created by a girl and a boy. I need love. And speaking of street cred, while radio did embrace I Need Love, It ultimately reached number 14 on the Hot 100 and number 1 on the R&B chart. The single hurt LL Cool J with his fellow rappers. Even though he hadn't actually sung on the track, its appeal to women painted a target for other rappers to take potshots at. Indirectly, it may even have contributed to LL's nearly decade-long beef with Cool Modi, a leader of the school of so-called lyrical rap that emphasized bars over melody. This brings up a sociocultural subtext underlying the question of melody in rap, the need for rappers to maintain hardness, and hence a certain machismo. Other rappers who emphasized so-called lyricism over anything that read as pop or R&B crossover included Boogie Down Productions leader Chris Parker, a.k.a. KRS-One. The bridge is over, the bridge is over. You see me coming in, he dance with the slipper sensia, down with the sound called BDP. As you may recall from our Hip Parade episode about early 90s hip-hop, KRS-One got into his own beef with the melodic rap troupe PM Dawn, who routinely sang on their hits. The music press at the time portrayed KRS-One's bum-rushing of PM Dawn's Prince B at a live concert as not only his defense of rap purism, it was also evidence, even though Prince B had affirmed that he was straight, of hardcore rap's vilification of anything seen as gay, fey, or female. Even in its more peaceable moments, lyricism in hip-hop meant rappers not only dropped killer rhymes, but maintained a wall between rap and musical cadence. When the rap duo Eric B. and Rakim titled their 1986 B-side classic My Melody, that witty title was meant ironically. Rakim raps Check Out My Melody, over an unsparing beat with scarcely any melody at all. My name is Rockin' My Law, and I'm raising for Ross, which it around. It still comes out all so easily. Will I E-M-C-E-E? My repetition of words, just check out my melody. What all of this purism ultimately meant was that, during hip-hop's first decade, male rappers largely avoided the melodic rap lane leaving it wide open for women to give it a try.
Nana Cherry's Buffalo Stance, a number three pop hit in 1989, blended elements of club, electro, and freestyle as the Swedish-born Cherry both rapped and sang in both American and British accents. It was a groundbreaking single that showed how global rap had become and that it could embrace melody while still sounding street. Buffalo Stance even reached number 16 on Billboard's Rap Songs chart, a strong showing for a woman rapper in 1989. And what about this multi-hyphenate? Break into a lyrical freestyle, grab the mic, look at the crowd and see smiles, cause they see a woman standing up on her own two. Queen Latifah was the highest profile solo woman MC of rap's golden age. From very early on, on her hits like 1989's Ladies First, Latifah was eager to show she could do it all, rapping with the speed and lyricism of her male peers, but also willing to deploy melodic hooks. Latifah would sometimes even handle the melodies by herself, as on her 1993 hit, U-N-I-T-Y. By the early 90s, rappers with melodic sensibilities, like Latifah, were no longer alone. Women who were singers were claiming space in hip-hop, and one woman defined the category. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Mary Jane Blige. Born in the Bronx. Raised in both Savannah, Georgia and Yonkers, New York was the prototypical artist of what came to be known as hip-hop soul. A gifted and gritty singer, Mary J. Blige grew up with rap, and so it didn't feel incongruous to her to sing over rap beats. That included beats served up for her by young producer Sean Puff Daddy Combs, Puffy produced bangers for Blige, like her debut single, the R&B chart topper, You Remind Me. Ever the hype man, Sean Combs was already billing Blige as queen of hip-hop soul from the jump, the moment her 1992 debut album What's the 411 dropped. Mind you, Blige could actually rap if she wanted to, as she proved early on in a collaboration with brand Nubian rapper Grand Poobah. Yeah, now what makes you different than the next thing you last weekend you couldn't even speak? You try to play like Mr. All of That, but now you want to come to me with some chit chat? But Blige didn't become the queen of hip hop soul by simply rapping. The more vital part of her legacy was how she infused gospel-style R&B singing with rap bravado. She didn't just hold her own alongside rappers like Grand Poobah or LL Cool J. Instead, Blige was defining a new model of hip-hop cadence with both melody and flow. Blige became so well-established in the rap world, she even helped introduce another young rapper mogul named Sean a couple of years later. I got the Godfather flow to Don Juan DeMarco. Swear to God, don't get it fucked up. I'm taking up this time. Yeah. Yeah. 
But we'll come back to Sean Carter in a bit. By the 90s, rap had also matured into other forms that would branch off from the lyricist family tree. Brooklyn rap duo Das Effects sported a unique rapid-fire rhyming style with tongue-tripping wordplay. Their debut album, Dead Serious, went platinum on the strength of hits like their number 25 pop, number 5 R&B hit, They Want Effects. While Das Effects didn't actually sing, their rippity rapping approach had a melodic flow. And even though the duo's hit-making days were relatively short-lived, they did influence another crew from Cleveland, Ohio, with a much longer hit-making career. This quintet, who called themselves Bone Thugs in Harmony, took Das Effect's speedy style and added actual melody. Bone Thugs in Harmony are arguably the patient zero of the sing and rap infection. Back in the 90s, the most unforgiving hip-hop purists did not even consider Bone Thugs rappers. But fans and the music industry considered their syncopated bounce a form of rap, as did all five Bone Thugs themselves. Busy Bone, Wishbone, Lazy Bone, Crazy Bone, and Flesh and Bone. MTV would later call Bone Thugs in Harmony the most melodic hip-hop group of all time and their sing-songy approach was deeply influential on what now qualifies as rap. On hits like First of the Month, Bone Thugs paired head-spinning rhymes with sweet R&B-style harmonies. Those melodies got even sweeter on their 1996 smash, The Crossroads, an homage to their late mentor, Eazy-E, of N.W.A. If there was any doubt about the appeal of Bone Thug's style, The Crossroads, which spent seven weeks at number one on the R&B chart and eight weeks on top of the Hot 100, made those quibbles moot. The album that spawned these hits, E1999 Eternal, went quadruple platinum. By the late 90s, Bone Thugs were even appearing on the soundtrack to a Batman movie. And by the early aughts, they were rapping alongside, no kidding, Phil Collins. Seriously, he's right there in the video with them. Google it if you don't believe me. Some argued at the time that Bone Thugs were not so much rapping, or exactly singing, as toasting. That's the chanting style of singing Jamaican DJs, adapted from African griots, and made essential in reggae and dancehall music. The form was perfected by such 60s and 70s Jamaican vocalists as you, Roy. Now wait the time and tell the people. By the 90s, however, dancehall had been modernized for the hip-hop era and was rising alongside rap as a commercial proposition. Reggae fusion artists like Shaba Ranks were appearing on soundtracks like 1992's Deep Cover, the album that launched the rapping careers of Dr. Dre and Snoop Doggy Dogg. 
dancehall was now side by side with gangster rap. Witness the hit because I'm going deep cover. Yeah, and yeah, don't stop. Cause it's 187 on an undercover car. Shabarak's even teamed directly with rappers as on his 1992 hit, The Jam, with KRS One. By the mid-90s, dancehall and reggae fusion artists were breaking at pop radio, most prominently Jamaican-American vocalist Shaggy. His singles, like his 1995 number three smash Boombastic, crossed reggae toasting with American hip-hop and pure pop. This success by reggae and dancehall had a knock-on effect on homegrown American rappers, which led to the next great multi-platinum milestone in sing and rap fusion. New Jersey trio The Fugees, Pras Michel, Wyclef Jean, and Ms. Lauren Hill lasted only five active years and just two albums. Their first, blunted on reality, didn't even chart. But that second album, their chart-dominating 1996 blockbuster The Score, secured the Fuji's legacy. The trio produced a seamless blend of rap, R&B, and even reggae that sounded remarkably natural and helped to permanently blur the lines of melody and lyricism in hip-hop. Their breakthrough single, Fuji La, sounded like it could have emanated from either Trenchtown in Kingston or South Orange, New Jersey, where the Fugees actually formed. And alongside the rhymes by Wyclef and Praz, Lauren Hill switched smoothly from rapping to singing. Of course, this number 29 pop, number 13 R&B hit wasn't the big hit that led the score to shift 7 million copies in America alone and 22 million worldwide. Mostly, the album blew up because of this. the Fuji's cover of Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly, a showcase for Lauren Hill's husky contralto voice that topped Billboard's radio charts in both R&B and mainstream pop and made Hill a star. The thing is, good as she was at singing, it was far from Hill's only skill. In addition to her acting credibly in a handful of films and her songwriting, Lauren Hill was a serious rapper with wicked flow. So why you imitating Al Capone? I be needing Simone and defecating on your microphone. So while both Wyclef and, to a lesser extent, Praz went on to lucrative careers of their own, it was their Fuji sister who transitioned most successfully to solo work on 1998's now legendary The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Hill's critically acclaimed, Grammy-winning, multi-platinum album had a truly wide-ranging definition of hip-hop. Hill dropped bars, as she had on the score, but then pivoted to singing her own choruses, as on her Hot 100 number one smash, Doo-Wop, That Thing. By the time Miseducation came out, Lauren was not alone. Hip-hop had widened its lens and fused with much of the music on the charts. Innovative producer Timbaland was working with both rapper Missy Elliott and, on the cutting-edge smash Are You That Somebody, R&B singer Aaliyah. The 
aforementioned Sean Carter, a.k.a. Jigga, a.k.a. Hova, a.k.a. Jay-Z, scored his first number one album, Hard Knock Life, led off by a single in which he rapped over a hook from a Broadway show. From standing on the corners bopping To driving some of the hottest cars New York has ever seen For dropping some of the hottest verses rappers ever heard Notwithstanding his wide-ranging taste in samples, Jay emerged as one of the last of his generation of straight-up rappers' rappers, focused on consummate technique. The man who would later dub himself Raps Frank Sinatra was, in essence, a classicist, and, in rap terms, a lyricist, a deliverer of bars. And what about Jay's future wife? She was still in the process of making her date with Destiny, ironically, with a member of the Fugees. The creation of Destiny's Child is an oft-told tale, including some storytelling and myth-making by Beyoncé herself on her albums decades later. As All Music's Hollywood Steve Huey notes, quote, For a time, Destiny's Child were known for their drama as much as their music, unquote. We needn't get into all that drama in our charts-based story here. Suffice it to say that, of course, the key member of Destiny's Child, if you will, the predestined child, was Beyoncé Giselle Knowles, born in Houston in 1981. By 1997, Destiny's Child was a foursome of singers, Kelly Rowland, Latavia Roberson, Latoya Luckett, and, of course, the 16-year-old Beyoncé whose father, Matthew Knowles, managed the group. They had already appeared on that year's Men in Black soundtrack and recorded a self-titled debut album, and they were about to score their first hit, thanks largely to Wyclef Jean. And the irresistible No, 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 officially titled No, No, No Part 2, because this version had been remixed just to include Wyclef, it was easy to assume that Clef, who both produced and rapped on the record, was the prime mover, the reason it was a hit in that peak Fuji's moment. But that sells short the uniqueness of Destiny's Child's sound. They had church-raised soul voices, but they delivered their vocals with the syncopation of rappers. No, No, No Part 2 peaked at number 3 on the Hot 100 and number 1 on the R&B chart in March of 1998. But Destiny's Child's follow-up singles for the rest of that year barely cracked the R&B chart and missed the pop chart entirely. By the end of 98, it was pretty safe to assume Destiny's Child could be a one-hit wonder. Imagine, if you can, a time when we thought we might never again hear from Beyoncé Knowles. What Destiny's Child had in common with the Fugees, not just Wyclef Jean, but most especially Lauryn Hill, was helping to redefine the breadth of commercial R&B in the hip-hop era. But here was the difference. Hill, for all her soul and impeccable technique, largely rapped like a rapper and sang like a singer. On her much-sampled follow-up hit, The Aching X Factor, Hill unfurled her gorgeous singing voice with grit and soul, but she wasn't pretending it was a rap track. While Hill added some hip-hop elements to her cover songs, like her remake of Frankie Valli's 1967 hit Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, in which she dropped a a one-two, a one-two mic check, she essentially delivered these songs' melodies straight, beautifully, but not like rap. You're just too good to be true. 
No wonder the miseducation of Lauryn Hill won the 1999 Grammy for Album of the Year, the first hip-hop album to achieve this feat and one of the last. It was a rap album legible to music business elders, one that, half the time, you could forget was ever rapped. Mind you, had Hill continued her career as a recording artist, given her influence and her prodigious talent, she might well have further redefined the shape of rap, not just for herself, but for all of hip-hop. Infamously, however, miseducation remains, still, 23 years later, Lauryn Hill's only solo studio LP, after a poorly received and erratically delivered MTV Unplugged album in 2002 containing some half-finished songs. I hope you can hear me Cause I know it's not profound Lauryn Hill, queen of hip-hop, quietly retired from recording leaving miseducation as her essentially perfect artistic statement, which meant that it would fall to others to turn rapping into singing, or perhaps more unexpectedly, turn singing into rapping. When we come back, destiny is fulfilled as Queen Bee assumes her throne, teams up with rap's Frank Sinatra, and watches as the center of hip-hop, from yay to drizzy, shifts in her direction. Taking me places I ain't never been. Non-Slate Plus listeners will hear the rest of this episode in two weeks. For now, I hope you've been enjoying this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Melanfi. That's me. My producer is Asha Saluja, and we also had help from Rosemary Belson. Special thanks also this month to Oliver Wong, who provided invaluable hip-hop history lessons. June Thomas is the senior managing producer and Gabriel Roth, the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the Hit Parade back your way. We'll see you for part two in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanfi. Now you've been maxing on my car. Give me back credit, buy me gifts.